This will be the last interview for the One Haas Current Student Podcast. From here on, we'll continue the One Haas Podcast as the Alumni Podcast. And the One Haas Current Student Podcast will continue on as here at Haas under the hosts Paulina, Ray, and Arvin. I'm Paulina Lee, and this week on Here at Haas, we are joined by a very special guest, founder and host of the One Haas podcast, Sean Lee. Welcome, Sean. Happy Monday. (laughs) Thank you. Well, how does it feel to be on the other side of the virtual interview table? I will say that I have not been looking forward to this interview because I think part of me feels like if I do this interview... It will effectively end my tenure uh, with the podcast. But, you know, with you guys coming on, helping out, and taking the baton, I do feel like this podcast will continue and that this will not be the last episode. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's great because you kind of get the best of both worlds, right? We are going to continue on with here at Haas, and then you will continue hosting the One Haas Alumni Podcast and continuing to share and seek out those super interesting stories and journeys of our graduated Hossies. So I think that's great. Yeah. Can't wait. (laughs) You and I were chatting the other day and we bonded because you grew up in Rochester Hills, Michigan. I grew Mm -hmm. up in Rochester, New York. You went to undergrad at Michigan State. I went to undergrad at Central Michigan. Mm -hmm. So would love for you to tell us a little bit more about your journey from Michigan to LA to now. Yeah. So I was, I was born in China, first off. Uh, moved to the US when I was seven um, with my parents, uh, very fortunate. And they moved to an area, uh, Rochester Hills, Southeast Michigan, that is a you know very amazing middle, upper middle income neighborhood. And it took me a while, I think at least a decade until I moved out of Michigan for me to realize just how lucky and privileged I was to have grown up where I grew up. But I think that plays a huge factor into who I've become. So along the way, went to school in Michigan, uh, went to Michigan State, like you said, studied finance and accounting. And I just always had the itch to be an entrepreneur, to start a business of some sort. I think it might have been influenced by some early books that was introduced to me, um, such as uh, Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill's famous book. You have your Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki, and uh, just a score of other books uh, influenced by my parents, colleagues, and uh, my mom and my dad. So once I came out of college in 07 with a finance degree, that was like the worst time to have a finance degree. (laughs) <laughs> because you know everything was falling apart uh, in the world the last time around. <laughs> um, coming full circle now. Coming full circle. It, my, my wife jokes and, and my friends that graduated at the same time as me last time around. They're all joking that you know we are just the harbingers of doom. Uh, every time we graduate from somewhere, just the economy falls apart. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, uh, came out. And realized, you know, there was nothing going on in Michigan with a finance degree. I just had to get out. And what better place than to move to Los Angeles? (laughs) It was literally one of those things I just thought, you know, I want to pick a place where I don't know anyone, 
where I would be forced to build a new network and really put myself in an uncomfortable situation. That's partially why I chose to come up to Haas, even though I live in LA and I commute, was because I didn't know anyone in the Bay Area. And so, yeah, that was what ultimately brought me from Michigan to LA is, uh, is in pursuit of a finance job. And you drove out, right? Just in a car with no actual job offer in hand? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had a couple interviews in play. I wasn't that crazy. <laughs> but I figured, you know, it's going to be impossible to find a job out in LA. So 3,000 miles away if I'm not in the city, right? And so I grabbed a buddy. I offered him to pay for his flight back, a one-way ticket. And so we drove across the country for about five days. It could have taken three but we decided to stay in Vegas for two days, and that's what extended the trip. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, moved out here and ended up getting a job in Sherman Oaks uh, doing investor relations, which is finance related. Later on, getting involved with a startup biotech company in microfluidics, and that really reignited the bug to start a business. You know, this was in 09, the economy was still recovering, it was still prime time for launching startups and businesses. I mean, around that same time, you had your Twitters, Airbnb, you know, Instagram, all these billion dollar companies now pop up around that time, which, you know, as unfortunate as the current economic environment is globally, I think the silver lining that we'll see in six months to a year's time is that it's also a great time for new opportunities for the next billion dollar ideas and businesses. No, I think that's great. And you've founded and owned a lot of companies over the past few years. Which of your companies are you most proud of and which one did you learn the most from? That's a great question. I would say the business I was most proud of was my co-working space. So back in 2011, I was introduced to a co-working space in Evanston, Illinois, of all places, where Northwestern is because I was working on an app project with a buddy of mine. And so I flew out there and he was like, let's go to the co-working space to hack out these ideas and you know, write on the walls and really hash things out. And I was like, yeah, sure, whatever. So I checked it out and I was like, wow, this is actually a great idea. It's a great way to bring the community of entrepreneurs together. And by entrepreneurs, I mean developers, designers, you know, the entire ecosystem, also uh, advisors and investors. And so I came back to LA and looked around, Googled around, and realized there were only, I think, like two or three co-working spaces. And they were predominantly on the west side, in what we call Silicon Beach, Santa Monica, Venice of LA. Uh, there was one other big one off of Wilshire, I remember. And s there was nothing in the rest of LA, which is, you know, downtown, East LA, or Northeast LA, Pasadena, you know. And I'm assuming the geographic for people to understand who aren't as familiar with LA, how long does it take to get from like West LA to East LA driving? In a pandemic, maybe 20 minutes. Okay, so that means in regular days, that's like what, two hours? <laughs> yeah, in a regular day, that's two hours, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so I, I came back and I was living in downtown LA. The e-commerce business I had co-founded with a couple high school buddies of mine was based out of LA at that time, downtown LA. And so it just so happened next to me, our office, there was another like 3,000 square feet of just vacant office space that's been 
derelict for like 10 years. And I just inquired how much it would cost to, to lease a space. And it was like a, a buck 50 triple net, which was crazy, like and included water and electricity. And I was able to negotiate down to like a dollar a square foot. Uh, and, and so it was pretty nuts how cheap it was for a downtown LA spot. What's the and typical so market I, rate? Is it like four or five bucks yeah, a square foot? Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. just yeah. a re- I mean, relative. You, you could barely get like a warehouse for like a buck, a buck fifty. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was like the, the best opportunity to just give it a shot. I had no experience in real estate at all. I had no idea of how to run or build or launch, you know, a, a co-working space. And I just hacked my way through it, like I do with everything else in life. And I got the space, tore it apart with my employees for my e-commerce business at the time. And my buddy, we literally just like tore everything apart, the carpeting, ripped everything out. In hindsight, probably wasn't like the smartest or safest thing to do. (laughs) Because who knows if there's like asbestos or anything out there in this like really old building. But we did it and we were able to do all the renovations for under 50K, which is something that I budgeted for and was really surprised that we were able to accomplish. And part of that was like, we, we did such crazy things. Like a lot of the ceiling tiles, you know, those foam tiles that people have in office spaces, we try to salvage as many as we could, even though they were all old and yellow looking. What we did was I asked my designer to create a template, a stencil. And we took down all like 800 tiles. <laughs> and uh, and I went to Home Depot, bought this like, you know, like um, it's like a spray painter that you can use for your house. And we basically just stenciled every single tile and repurposed it. And that at least saved, gosh, a couple thousand dollars, I would say. Nice. Uh, in renovations. And and it was just it's just crazy how creative we got. Uh, with a limited amount of funding because everything was self-funded. But that was probably my best experience, literally physically building something from scratch and then having to figure out contracting, getting around sublease laws and rules in our contract. Because if you sublease a space or an apartment, you have to share in the profit with your landlord. That's in like the majority of contracts. And I was just like, how did gyms get around it, right? Gyms, they don't sublease to me, right? And I realized, oh, the loophole's a membership model. If you have a membership model, then it circumvents subleasing. And so, you know, learning how to draft up contracts for that and then just building a community one step at a time. But luckily at that time, you know, Meetup had just started to blow up and it was it was fairly easy to build a community using Meetup. At the time, I, I ran and owned the downtown LA startup meetup group and we had like some six seven hundred members on there it's like the largest meetup downtown i love it what would you say from your co-working space do you miss working there or working with that community are you still involved so i've actually met a lot of the people i know now in la i know because of the co-working space which in hindsight was an amazing idea (laughs) Like some of the people that have reached back out to me, you know, to explore different business opportunities or even inventions that they've come up with. I, when I think back, I'm just like, I know these people because of the co-working space. Yeah, I feel like you as a person, as I've gotten to know you and as I continue to learn more about your story, 
you just are such a learner, whether it's podcasting, whether it's interior design, just a variety of different categories that you just throw yourself at full-heartedly. What do you think has inspired that insatiable want to learn? I mean, both my parents are professors. They teach teachers how to teach. They're teachers' teachers. And specifically, they teach teachers how to teach English, which um, when I tell this to people, always sounds so ironic. It's like these Chinese immigrants are here to teach teachers how to teach English. Uh, <laughs> but that's, that's what my dad got his PhD in, in reading language arts. I think ever since I was little, they just always, I was just always surrounded by books. I was surrounded by people who read themselves and encouraged me to read. And so I think that had a huge influence on my insatiable thirst for, for knowledge and just learning new things. And I think part of it also has to do with the fact that like I moved to the US when I was seven, right around the age when like, you know, kids are super curious. And I was uprooted from this super homogenous Chinese city to a super homogenous American town, you know? I think that actually, now I think about it, this is actually a really interesting question. If I had moved to LA or SF or somewhere where, you know, there's a large Asian community, I think I would have, and I, I see this with a lot of my immigrant friends who come here, is that they have this support network, Right. Of just there's just other Asian people around, or there's like plenty of Asian restaurants. There's like Asian groceries all over Michigan nowadays, and, and back then there weren't. There weren't that many Chinese restaurants, and there weren't that many Chinese or Asian people. Period. Where I grew up, and so I think that forced me to really just assimilate, and that act of assimilation I think forced me to be curious about my new environment versus having some kind of fallback, right? entering a community where it's like, oh, it's LA, I can just go to San Gabriel and just hang out with my people and not really be forced to assimilate and be curious about other people. I think that has a huge part to do with my curiosity and just my desire to learn. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you were forced at such an impressionable age to essentially, to your point, like assimilate, like as kids, all we want to do is be accepted and yeah. fit in and find out who we are, especially at that age. So yeah, yeah. I love that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I know you talked about your parents as being big influences on your lives. And as I think about myself and come on my own journey and think about your journey, I always love this concept that parents and mentors are constantly nudging us. So these small moments, questions, pieces of advice that provide direction in our lives. Right. And then I also think about sometimes we have, you know, defining moments, whether it's moments of elation or despair that really define the paths we take in life. So as you think back upon your journey to this point, do you have any one defining moment or one or two defining moments that you would identify has shaped who you are today? I would definitely say what I just mentioned, but I think other defining moments in my life that I can think about, again, has to do with nurture, where there was this one point in high school, I remember the day that I fell in love with piano. And to give you some context, I mean, uh, sure, this is a little stereotypical, but you know, a Chinese kid played piano since I was like five years old. <laughs> 
my parents like bought a piano before I was even born. I was destined to play it, right? <laughs> and uh, but I hated it, like every other kid. Right. Like who doesn't hate practicing an instrument for like an hour a day every single day, three hundred and fifty days out of the year? And I hated it for like the first ten years till I was like fifteen, sixteen. I remember very distinctly. And um, I just I did it begrudgingly because you know Tiger Mom said you had to do it, right? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I remember the turning point. And this, I'm sharing this because this set a precedent, I think, for a lot of things that I do in life. And it has a lot to do with this idea that passion comes before skill. You know, when people say like, oh, like you should follow your passions or do what you love. There's a whole book on this, actually, Cal Newport's book and a bunch of other books that, that talk about this, this passion myth, as we call it. Is that skill comes first. Passion never comes first. Passion comes after you get really good at something. You get validation from other people and yourself that you know you are skilled at this and you're just like man i really enjoy this because i'm good at it right and that was a turning point for me for piano was i think when i was 16 i finally felt like man i'm really good at this and i was winning awards and people were like hey you're really good at this and at the time people just attributed to oh like you're just a piano prodigy i was like yeah, I'm a piano prodigy. You know? <laughs> and it wasn't until a couple of years later, I was like, no, I don't believe in prodigies. There's no such thing as a prodigy. What that turning point taught me was that if you are to follow your passion or find something that you love doing, you have to start identifying what you're good at or what you could be good at and put in the time and put in the practice and then you'll turn to love it. <laughs> and that's the recurring story in my life is just to put your head down, focus on one thing, and get good at it, and then and then find out that you love it. And that's the story of this podcast, really. I had no intention of continuing this podcast. It was just a side project. And then two years later, you know, after doing some 60 or so interviews now, I realized that I really enjoy doing this. And I could see myself doing this for a career if I had to. Actually, not if I had to, if I could. <laughs> <laughs> because it has to make financial sense. So let's talk a little bit more about One Haas. How did it originate? How did you get started? What is the story of One Haas from start to now? One Haas started in early February of 2018. I was about the same time as you, like, you know, six, seven months into school and just exploring everything that Haas had to offer. I remember very distinctly that when I was applying to Haas, I was looking for a podcast to listen to, to hear what Haas was like. And the only thing I could find was some digital media recordings from like 2012. And mind you, this was me applying in 2017. I was little shocked that there were no podcasts because when I was looking at other schools, you know, they had podcasts for their students. And so I think once I started school, I was just like, why, why don't I start a podcast? How hard could it be? Let me take a step back and give you some more context. So it's not like I don't have any media entertainment experience. I've been doing media all my life. Um, I've always been fascinated with shooting videos, making music, composing, you know, DJing, flying drones. Like I, I have a lot of hobbies that are centered around media creation. 
just like you, actually, Paulina. <laughs> <laughs> That's another thing we had in common. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so it was a combination of just me having these prior skill sets and just the opportunity at the time. No, I think that makes a lot of sense. And that was something that we bonded over the other day, just the variety of hobbies and kind of you pick up these little interests along the way and then finding this moment where they culminate all in one and you can connect different passion points together, Mm. which I think to your point is why the podcast was such a great idea and something you were so passionate about and one reason I joined the team as well. So what have you learned over your course of two years over interviewing 60 plus students? (laughs) I know a couple of things I learned were that, for one, everyone has an amazing story. And if the story doesn't come out, it's not because you didn't have a good story. It's because I, as the interviewer, failed to get that story out of you. I think that's the first thing I've learned. And so over the years, I've been working very intently on improving my interviewing skills and emulating the greats, you know, Terry Grosses of the world, and also just becoming a better listener. The podcasting experience, the interviewing experience really forced me to become a better listener because that's the only way you're going to be able to pick up on the little hints and the little tones and 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 catch when someone is really passionate or when someone really cares about something. And that's what you want to pull out and extract in an interview is you really want to hear what this person just cares about. And I think that's what people want to hear in stories, right? It's like, what makes this person tick? What drives them versus, oh, yeah, I have a job. I do this and I do that. Because there's something that makes everybody tick. And just like with what I shared earlier with my history, there are forces and there's, there are influences that make us who we are. And it's like, how can we really hear about that? Because that's what's inspiring, in my opinion. So yeah, those are some things I learned. And they're great life skills to have. In general, those are the skills that we need to have as leaders in the community, as leaders in business in order to truly be able to listen, whether it's to employees, whether it's to the shopper, whether it's to partners in business, to understand, to your point, what are they passionate about? What makes them tick? What motivates them? What inspires them? Because you can't have a successful business if you're not listening in both directions, right? Mm, Absolutely. I did want to take um, a step back and talk to you about how you ended up at Haas. We haven't Mm. really touched on that part yet. So, you know, you went from Michigan to LA and you had a couple different businesses that you started down there. You also worked for a few other companies down there. So at what point did you step back and say, now is the time to go to business school? I had a feeling when I was reaching this glass ceiling for my businesses where I felt like no matter how many more books I read and how many more people in LA that I met and networked with, I didn't feel like I was growing. And it was a very painful time uh, for me, especially as a lifelong learner, as a student always ambassador. (laughs) (laughs) And that was around 2016, about say about year seven or eight into the businesses that we had started. And part of it was driven by my really close friend and business partner 
who is an Anderson grad. Actually, I have, to, I have to give him credit too for the podcasting because he actually helped Anderson launch their podcast because he was doing the editing for them. And I think that was also in the back of my head when I, I was like, oh, I should launch a podcast too, you know, when I get to school. And so his name's Philip Chang, he's my best friend. He definitely gets a shout out there as well. But he also was a huge influence on me going to school because when we graduated college together, we went to Michigan State together, we went to high school together actually too. When we graduated, we were like, we're never going back to school. Like, no way. You know, we had launched our business, we were successful, we were like making money and having a great time in LA, you know, of all places to, to be successful. But he had decided to go back to school because he recognized this earlier than I did that we needed to expand beyond our existing network. That's number one. And two, that because we we're such scrappy entrepreneurs and we lacked formal mentors of any sort, businesses or business owners that were much more successful than we were, that he needed to grow and learn somewhere else. Our difference is that he's not like a big book nerd like I am. And so I was still a little self-righteous and overconfident in my state where I was like, I'm, I read a lot of books, right? And I'm just like, I think there's still so much I can teach myself. And then, like I said, once I hit that year six, year seven, I was like, man, I'm really reaching my limit and I'm just banging my head against this wall and I don't feel like I'm growing. At the time, you know, we had built a million dollar business and I was like, how do I build a hundred million dollar business? And so that's when I hunkered down, took the GMAT, applied to schools, and um, gone to Anderson, which was the natural choice being in LA. It's like in our backyard. But he said, you know, don't go to Anderson. I'm already tapped in this network. You know, go somewhere where we can build a new network of people and reach more people as, as business people, right? And so that was a huge factor in deciding to, to commute to Berkeley. The original plan was always to move up to the Bay Area after about six to eight months. But after doing it for like six to eight months of flying every weekend, I was like, this is easy. <laughs> you know, I love the Bay Area. I love the people. I love the culture. But I just love the weather down in SoCal more because I came from Michigan. <laughs> You're like, I already did my time in the yep. snow and cold. I want to go to the beach and actually <laughs> go in the water. <laughs> yep. That's right. So yeah, that, that's what brought me to Toss. It was this realization that I needed to learn from peers that are much smarter and you know much more experienced in their respective industries and also learn from the professors. And your first year in, what do you think surprised you most about Haas? Did it meet those expectations? Oh boy. I mean, let me let me take another step back here. So one of my biggest reasons, and I mentioned this earlier when I was chatting about my buddy, was that our focus on the MBA was for networking. As entrepreneurs, we're not intending to come in for career switching or career advancement because, you know, like we work for ourselves, right? And so it's kind of like, what's the purpose? Like, what are we doing here? Right? <laughs> and many times, like other entrepreneurs would be like, go take that 100K, 120, 150K, whatever it is, and go invest in another business, right? Why would you go throw it at a school? And how I ended up rationalizing that was that I'm paying all this money effectively as a lifetime membership into a country club or a yacht club. 
And I liken that because that's really what the environment and the alumni base and its value is for you know one of these top 10, top 15 business schools. Yeah, you're getting top tier education and your network is amazing in school, but you're also getting connected to the alumni base, right? And that's, that's a huge value. And that's something, you, if you can leverage correctly the network and the people that you meet, I believe that's going to give you the, the highest ROI than any job advancement or you know anything like that. And so that's when I came to school and I was not surprised about. What I was surprised about, going back to your question, was how much I learned from the classes. <laughs> <laughs> like I thought I'd read you know, everything on strategy marketing and, and, and management and all these things and people skills because you know, having been running our own businesses, like we had to wear many hats, right? But just like the lecture alone added so much more value to me because uh, it's that saying that you don't know what you don't know, right? And I really didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and, and the school was a rude awakening for that. But even more so, and I think this is something very unique to the evening weekend program, is just the wealth of experience that your classmates bring because they've all been working in their respective industries for you know eight to 10 years. It's the knowledge that they impart in the classroom, their perspective on, say, strategy or operations or leading people or man, whatever it is. It's their perspectives. I think that surprised me even more so than I could have ever expected. I totally agree. I feel like, you know, even just being one and a half semester in the community that we have within the part-time program has just so impressed me because we do a really great job of filling out a very diverse set across all the cohorts. Mm -hmm. And so to your point, there's so many different perspectives, so many different types of business leaders, educators, those in the medical profession that mm -hmm. just add two, three, four different layers into the discussion right. at any given point that really enhances the overall learning aspect and then the great thing for a lot of us, because we are working part-time, is that we can just turn around and apply it real-time, those skills yeah. and learnings that we're getting from the classroom. Yeah. And so you've also done, through One Haas, a lot of community building. I'm just curious, do you know what drives that? I mean, you talk about your close relationships that you have from home. You talk about building the community down in L.A., and I feel like you've done a really great job at building a community here at Haas. What drives that? Uh, that's a great question. I think what drives it is tied to my desire to learn. And whenever I learn, I want to share what I've learned. You know, I came to school to network and I was just meeting such amazing people at Haas and hearing such amazing stories. And naturally, I'm just like, hey, you should connect with this person. Or, you know, I, I just met this person that has like a very similar background or interests as you. Have you met them? And people are like, no. And just made me realize there's this huge inefficiency in networking in this MBA setting. And, and mind you, we're one of the smaller MBA schools, right? I can't imagine what it's like at other places. And so the podcast was also a way to, to solve for this efficiency problem where I thought, you know, let me just get your story on air and have more people listen to it at once, right? And if they have similar interests, they can just reach out to you. And so going back to your question, yeah, everything stems from this idea of learning stuff from people, 
from my guests, right, on, on the podcast and, and sharing that knowledge with people in some way, shape, or form. As you think back about all the different stories you've collected over the last two years, do you have a one hoss episode that's your favorite? That's a terrible question. <laughs> Just because I'm I, making you choose? Yes, because you're making me <laughs> No, I can't choose. And not because I don't want to choose, but because I stand true to what I say about how everyone has a unique story. How about this? I will say that there are some interviews that were very difficult for me that really stood out. And they were my interviews with Bree Jenkins and Evan Wright. And it touches upon the issue of, of race and underrepresented minorities, URMs. And, you know, I have this off the cuff interview style where I don't like to do much research on the person I'm interviewing. You know, they just get referred in, then I just sit down and look at their LinkedIn briefly and I just start asking them questions and then go from there. But these were two times where I was really just underprepared, to be very honest. And at times, like, I didn't know how to ask questions regarding race regarding diversity issues that we have at Haas, right? And these were very difficult interviews, not because the guests were difficult, but because the topic feels so sensitive to broach. But they are also the most important topics and the most important conversations that we need to be having, not just here at Haas, but across the world, right? And... I just remember when I was editing those episodes that, you know, I was like, wow, I sound like an idiot. And I had the liberty to cut it out, right? Just to chop it out. But I was like, no, I can't rob our listeners of, of this awkwardness of my ineptness because it's very important to me. And I think that it's very important to Haas and his podcast to retain its authenticity. I think those interviews just made me realize how much more I need to learn to be a better interviewer and why this project and what we're doing is so important. Totally agree. I think we both have a passion for being a student always. And yeah. I think instances and moments like that really humble you right? Yeah. Because you come in to a lot of these interviews and a lot of situations with a certain level of confidence that you can navigate it easily and talk yeah. your way around it. But there are just some topics, some stories that, you know, our place is really just to sit back and learn. And, and that's why we're here. Yeah. It's important to check how fortunate we are and how we should be leveraging that to help other people, right? Uh, yeah. It's very prevalent to the current environment, right? Yeah. Yeah. Such a wide spectrum and kind of all people affected, but some more than others. And it's really showing the different breaks in the system that we have. Yeah. Some a lot more than others. Exactly. Yeah. As we think about the next upcoming months, and hopefully we'll be in a better spot today as a 
a society and economy as we are right now, but you technically graduate next month in May, which is <laughs> wild. So what's next? What's next? That's a great question. I mean, I, it's been a roller coaster ride here at Haas. I mean, I came in as an entrepreneur to network. And then I realized, like I said, that there's just so much I don't know. What are some ways that can help me get to know what I need to know, right? And if that path is a job in consulting or product management or banking, you know, then I should take it to really expose myself and gain the skills to become a better business person in the future, right? A better entrepreneur. And when I started the podcast, I happened to have interviewed two people that shaped the next year and a half of my host time. And those two people were uh, David Zhao and Vlad uh, Rozkowski. They were my second interview. I didn't know them at all. They were a year above me. And I, at the time when I started the podcast, I was really desperate. I was like, please, somebody talk to me, you know, like, I'll interview anybody, right? <laughs> Sometimes when I approach people, I was like, you know, hey, I'm launching this podcast. They're like, oh, where is it? Can I hear it? And like, I'm launching it right now. <laughs> like, <do> you <laughs> I need be you to be it? on it. Yeah. <laughs> and people are like, I'm not ready yet. You know, like, I don't feel prepared. I'm just like, I'm not prepared, you know, but I'm doing it anyways. But anyways, these two guys agreed. I had to give Steve Lee some credit too because he was my first guest and he's only my first guest because he was the first one to agree. He was an Oski with me. A brave uh, soul. Yeah, he was brave, but he's very much confidence without attitude. But yeah, he, he set it off. We still joke about that first episode. But yeah, with uh, David and Vlad, I had no idea what I was going to talk to them about. They ended up sharing with me their journey through investment banking of how, you know, coming to school, going to investment banking prep. And then at that time, this was February, when we were recording, they had just landed their investment banking internships, summer internships. And I was like, oh, I studied finance. And I never really got to practice it outside of the two years of investor relations. I am kind of interested in this. I've also never raised money for my startups. We bootstrapped everything. And... Um, and I was like, boy, I, I really want to learn how to be more confident and have more credibility if I were to go in front of investors and ask for money someday. And so literally for the next 18 months, I went down this investment banking track and I thought, you know, I'd come on and do investment banking for a couple of years. Did it. And I realized, you know, I, part of it, I think has to do with my age and my experience working or at least running businesses. You know, working 16-hour days was, was nothing new for me. Uh, when you start your own business, you're, you're working 16-hour days. <laughs> right now, I'm working 16-hour days. And I think having that mindset going into this internship, um, you know, I, I prepared a lot beforehand, before the internship too. I spent months like doing modeling practice and, and talking to managing directors and, and learning modeling from them. So I, I wanted to accelerate my learning there. And I think once I got there, I realized that, you know, I, I extracted what I wanted out of this experience. And so that really screwed up my plans because <laughs> I'd planned to go into investment banking for at least two years. And now this is like, what am I going to do? I just gave up this 
super high paying career to not knowing what I'm going to do next. And I'm, I'm sharing the story to kind of walk you through where I might go next. So then I was like, let me explore venture capital because that's usually the route that bankers go into. They go into banking, which is the sell side, right? Of finance. And they move over to the buy side, which is private equity, venture capital. Explored that, took PE class, private equity, leveraged buyout with Peter Goodson. And I took the venture capital and private equity class with Terry and Sean. Again, one of my favorite classes at Haas. I think everyone should take it. Only offered in the fall. These are like industry seasoned venture capitalists coming to teach at Haas once a year. It's, it's a really great privilege. And I realized, you know, I think this is a little too early in my career to go sit and be an advisor investor. I s- realized after taking the class for a semester, I still wanted to build things. My heart and soul was still set on just, you know, building products and services from scratch. And so what I did, we're talking now in April, classes concluded last semester in December. From December to February, it was this discovery process, a lot of meditation, a lot of solitude and figuring, you know, trying to figure out like what is it that I want to do next. And then come February, everything started coming together. And at that time, I, by the way, I still thought this whole podcasting was still just a hobby. And I was trying to meet more and more people, like you guys, like Ray, Paulina, you know, Arvin, uh, people that want to help out with the podcast. And coincidentally, at the same time, the alumni office reached out to me asking if I'd be interested in, in launching a, an alumni podcast. And then some business buddies, business owners reached out to me asking if I do a business podcast, you know, help them produce it. And then really forced me to systemize the podcasting process, right? And take it more seriously, which is around the same time I realized, hey, I really enjoy doing this. Why can't I do this as a business? Why in my head did I see only finance or consulting or product management careers as legitimate careers, right? Why is podcasting or building a media business not a legitimate career? And so I had that, you know, revelation. And so now what I'm focusing on is building a podcast business in in many ways. Uh, On one way, it's podcasting as a service where we provide you know everything from pre-production to post-production services. If you're a company or a school or any organization or even an individual, if you want to launch a podcast, we can help you do that from consulting you how to start to helping you just build it if you have the money to pay us. <laughs> like We'll do everything for you short of you doing the interview yourself. We'll even coach you on interviewing. And then another piece of the business that I'm looking to build is the content business, is building out a library of content, which will include alumni content and other forms of educational content through a podcasting format, audio first format. And yeah, and there's more to it, but you know that's kind of the gist of where I'm headed. That's so exciting. I feel like it fits very well into your overall story and your journey, just combining the different passion points you've had, even just around community, around media, what you've learned at Haas over the last couple of years. So I know I'm personally very excited to see where it goes and I'm sure it will be very successful. Yeah, 
that's what my wife hopes as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I mean, I feel very fortunate that, you know, I was able to sell the businesses before I decided to go into investment banking. It was kind of the decision point where you know, I thought I had to part with my previous engagement so I can move forward with something new. And now that I'm coming back into entrepreneurship, yeah, I've been an entrepreneur, serial entrepreneur for over 10 years, and there's still a lot of apprehension. There's still a lot of just what the hell am I doing? <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> like, you know, ex- exploration, I should say. But at the same time, it just feels right. It feels like this is something that I enjoy doing and this is something that is providing value. And that's really my litmus test for, you know, what I decide to work on or do with my time. I mean, granted, if this doesn't work out, which there's always that chance because of the economy, because of, you know, whatever, then what I'll do next is just find a career or job in a similar industry and build the business on the side. And that's, you know, if there's something that I want to leave this interview with for people listening is that I'm a huge proponent of working and hustling on the side. So that's what I would do if, you know, this thing doesn't take off as quickly as I would like it to. If I can't find a path to monetization as quickly as I foresee, then I'll definitely do as a side hustle. So the point is you're not getting rid of me. Darn it. No, I think that's great. The other day when we were chatting, I wrote down a quote that you said, which is success means putting in the overtime. And that really speaks to kind of your whole career and all the companies you've built and even having the podcast on the side the last two years as being a student while running these businesses and everything. It's been very impressive. So I have one last question and then we're going to go into some rapid fire Q&A. But as you reflect upon graduating in about a month here, what would be your number one takeaway from B-School? Your advice for incoming students or selfishly for students like myself that are just one year in? I think the same message that many students have given on this podcast, which is be involved. Look, it's exhausting. I know you guys are working full-time jobs or, you know, if you're a full-timer, just wrapped up in meeting people and school events. Everybody's busy, but this is just a short-term thing, right? You're only in school for two years as a full-timer, three years as EW. Like this is, unless you get a PhD, this is your last chance to like be in school. And so make the most of it, right? It's something I've always shared was it's, And I realized myself, it's so easy after eight hours of class to say, like, I just want to go home. But I promise you, if you stay out that one extra hour, you're going to catch that second wind and you'll never regret it. So just really, whenever you feel like you just want to take a break, don't. (laughs) (laughs) Because just tough it out. Just see it as like a like a pandemic, you know, <laughs> you've got to tough it out, you know, it's, it's only going to be for a short time. Right. And if you can tough it out, I think the ROI just, it's going to pay in dividends. Because three years goes by so much quicker than oh, yeah. I think you think it does. Yeah. I, I, I was like relishing in how much time I had in school and now it's over. <laughs> <laughs> We're kicking you out. 
Yep. <laughs> All right, let's do some rapid fire Q&A. So just kind of short one sentences to wrap it up. Because we're on a podcast, because you are getting into podcasting, top three podcasts for you. Hmm. Top three shows are definitely Fresh Air, Radio Lab, and This American Life. Big NPR supporter. Big NPR supporter. KCCC in Southern California. <laughs> uh, top three songs or artists on your Spotify. Wow, that's that's going to be very obscure. Oh, you know what? Well, there's one that everybody knows. So, I just recently discovered Charlie Puth's like album from 2018 or something, 2017. Voice notes. I listened to that album for two months straight. I don't know why. I just love his voice. I just think he's such a good artist. Um, such a good vocalist and yeah so that's that's one just his whole entire voice notes album <laughs> i've never heard of him so i'll have to look him up <laughs> you don't know Char- you know charlie puth well maybe you don't listen to pop music Never mind. i'm sorry I, i'm sorry i should just realize i shouldn't assume everybody listens to pop music all right so charlie puth who else is on my list right now i have a lot of really weird songs there's favorite song like a another a remake of creep by rehab that's a good one i've been listening to that one a lot so good so good so good oh and last but not least masego i love masego masego made this amazing youtube video that everybody should watch with fkj french kiwi juice called uh, tado t-a-d-o-w it's a like it's like a eight or 12 minute video where they make a song from scratch and it's non-stop they're just layering on tracks upon tracks without pausing, without missing a beat, you know, in their like eight bar segments. It's it's just the most amazing thing. Just to right. see these really talented people build something from scratch nonstop. It just blew my mind. But Masego has a new song called King's Rant that I just love. It's on repeat. All right. Okay, so you're a dad, a husband, a student, a podcast host, working 16-hour days. What's your number one productivity hack to get you through the day? Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Straight coffee. Not just coffee, but cold brew. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Um, No, the biggest productivity hack is keeping a positive attitude. Yeah. All right. And last one, after you graduate, what are you going to miss most about Haas? See my friends, see my classmates. I mean, they're all going to be up in the Bay, but we take plenty of ski trips a year. So I, I, I don't think about it. I'm just going to be very intentional about connecting with people, staying in touch as we are doing now. And, you know, not take the relationships that I've built for granted. I love that. Well, thank you, Sean. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. And we're hoping we can continue on your legacy with here at Haas. So thank you so much. Thanks, Paulina. And thanks for tuning in to here at Haas. Know a Haasie that has a story to tell? Nominate them on our website, onehaas.org. And if you enjoyed this week's episode, please subscribe and leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to share out this podcast with your favorite bears.